little different. Thank you so much, worship team. Well, you know, an interesting but neglected subject is the matter of dreams and the Bible. By dreams, I, I don't mean ambition, like you might have a dream to accomplish something. When I was a kid, my dream was to play point guard for the Boston Celtics. I'm standing here today, so you can obviously tell that that dream did not materialize. But I realized that I got a little closer to my dream than I once thought. See, I grew up in Maryland, and now I only live about two hours away from where the Boston Celtics actually play. So I did, I did get a little closer to my dream than I thought. I live a little closer, but didn't actually get there. You're supposed to laugh at that. Come on. All right. Now, by dreams, though, I don't mean ambition. I mean God revealing a message to a person while they're asleep. One writer has said that there are 21 different instances in Scripture where God reveals an important message in a dream. For example, Joseph and the wise men each receive visions and dreams about the birth of Jesus. And there are even more visions in the Bible, which is the same thing as a dream, except the person is awake when they receive it. Now the question arises, because I get this question myself, I'll just throw it out there, because I figure I'll get asked it after service, does God still do this? What do you think? Well, clearly, Scripture is the primary means that God communicates and our standard of faith and practice. That said, Scripture describes God, to, God speaking to His prophets through dreams and visions. Numbers 12.6 says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. And this did not end with the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes from the Old Testament book, Joel, and applies it to the present context. He says, quote, in the last days, i got to stop there for a second, in the last days, and that phrase appears in the New Testament, that phrase means the time between Jesus' first and second coming. It doesn't mean just right at the last moment before Jesus returns. It's this whole stretch of time. Okay? So in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So far from ending it, the Lord seems to be saying, I'm not only just going to speak through prophets, but I'm going to have this more widespread. Now, I do believe that, so I do believe that God communicates through dreams. Perhaps the most powerful proof is the multitude of Muslims who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ through dreams. I read yesterday about a man who was a prominent clergyman, Muslim clergyman, who became a Christian after seeing Jesus in a dream. He has experienced tremendous persecution as a result of his faith in Christ, having his house burned down, I believe, and so on. But he's led over 200 people to faith in Jesus Christ. So God can use dreams, even to people who are non-Christians. Today we come to perhaps the greatest dream in the Bible where God gave a message 
not only to a non-Christian, but to the most powerful man in the entire world, and to a man who who had previously laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Not a very likely candidate, would you suspect? This is a very fascinating passage that we have before us here this morning. It's found in Daniel chapter 2. I invite you to turn there. We're going to continue our series on this marvelous book. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, Daniel chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 2, page 737. I must warn you, as you're there, you'll notice it's quite a lengthy chapter. 49 verses. And yes, I'm going to cover all 49 verses here this morning. I don't think I've ever covered so many verses in all the times I've preached. So I hope you don't have any early lunch plans. (laughs) Just kidding. It might be a little bit longer, but it'll be about the same amount of time. And I hope that we can have a little bit of discussion here. The Lord's put something on your heart afterward that we can discuss and share as a church body. All right, so the first part of the story is the king's dream and his impossible demand. The king's dream and his impossible demand. So let's start with verses 1 to 11. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I will show you, shall show you that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except any gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Let's stop right there. So Nebuchadnezzar was a new king. Recall that prior to his becoming king, he was the crown prince, and he went and destroyed Egypt in 605, His father, who was the king of Babylon, died in the same year. So he went back to Babylon, became king, 
And then he promptly came back to Jerusalem in 605, laid siege to the city, and also exiled uh, a bunch of the young men, including Daniel and his companions, as we saw in chapter 1. Now, in the second year of his reign, he had troubling dreams. Now, dreams can mean a lot to people in modern times, but they meant a lot more even so in ancient days. The ESV Study Bible says, quote, Dreams were thought to be shadows of future events. A king's dreams had significance for the nation as a whole, and the interpretation was important so that the king might take steps to be ready for the events the dreams anticipated or even to counteract them. So in other words, the king not He not only wanted to know what the dream meant, but as the leader of the nation, right, he wanted to know what he needed to do in response to this. So what he does is he summons his advisors, these magicians and enchanters and the sorcerers, and tells them, look guys, I had a dream. And collectively, these men were known as the wise men. They appear a lot in the book of Daniel. You might say, well, who were the wise men? One writer says, they were a part of a long line of consultants to kings who worshipped various gods, practiced the occult, studied the stars, foretold the future, interpreted dreams, and probably experimented with spells, potions, and elixirs. So this was this group of advisors who practiced these various things and they stood before the king. These were the wise men. By the way, it's very fascinating that when we skip ahead to Matthew chapter 2 in the New Testament, we read about the wise men who came to visit the baby Jesus from the east. More than likely, they came from the same class of people that are mentioned here in Daniel and who had somehow been influenced by Daniel centuries earlier and knew of these prophecies about the coming Messiah. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Now in verse 4, the wise men asked the king about the dream, as we read. And shockingly, he refuses. And he gives them a whole lot of motivation, right, to get this thing figured out. You're talking about motivating your workers. Either you're going to die, or you're going to be rewarded greatly. So which one are you going to do? Now they ask then, having no chance they think, they ask a second time, at least just tell us the contents of the dream. And the king, again, refuses to tell them anything. And he thinks they're stalling, which no doubt they were doing. In verse 10, they respond by telling the king that no man can interpret a dream without first knowing it, and that no king had ever made such a demand. And they probably were right. If you remember back in Genesis 41, you remember King, uh, the Egyptian Pharaoh? He had uh, some troubling dreams, and he wanted someone to interpret the dreams, but at least he told his advisors what the dream was. Nebuchadnezzar is playing hardball. He doesn't do anything. He says, you go figure it out, and then tell me what it means. And the advisors know that no person can do this as they say, only the gods. Please notice that these wise men are admitting that their gods do not communicate with them. There's no correspondence between their gods, and they had tons of them, 
and human beings. We'll see that the one true God does. How will the king respond? So, moving on in verses 12 to 16, it says, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariok read the matter, excuse me, made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. The king's not happy. He sends out this decree that all of the wise men, not just the ones who were standing before him, but all of those, including Daniel, were to be killed. And so as the decree goes out, they find Daniel. He hears about it and asks why it is so urgent. Now, if you remember last time, we camped out on the fact that Daniel was a man filled with wisdom. And we see that again here, don't we? And how he interacts in this crisis situation that is just thrust upon him. It says there in verse 14, he handled the situation with prudence and discretion. Daniel could have blown up in anger, right? When he heard this news. What is the matter with this king? He's such a hothead. What is he doing? Or he could have gotten mad that I didn't even have a chance to be there and now I'm going to lose my life. Or he could have just gone passive and said, well, that's the way it's going to be. Daniel doesn't act that way, does he? He inquires about the matter with no doubt a calm demeanor and requests that he might have an opportunity to to interpret the dream. And just as he did with the food, he makes a very limited and reasonable demand and then asks for opportunity for the Lord to intervene in the meantime, doesn't he? Daniel is remarkably wise. So much to learn from him and his example of how he handles these things. When a crisis comes our way, do we handle it with prudence and discretion? And he is also a model of faith. He is a model of faith. Notice that Daniel makes an appointment with the king to interpret the dream even before God has revealed the dream to him. That, my friend, is faith. And I was thinking about I love how Daniel didn't grow weary in trusting God. Remember, he's been exiled. He's been ripped from his family, taken to another place. He could have said long ago, God, I'm so tired of this. When are you going to stop bringing me through these trials? He gets delivered out of the trial in chapter 1. He thinks, oh man, I'm home free. I want to go through this for a while. And then boom, all of a sudden, his life is on the line. But instead of growing cold and bitter toward God, he leans even more on, in faith and trust that God will work in this situation. Isn't that powerful? He doesn't throw up the white flag after a while and say, enough's enough. He keeps digging into his trust and faith in God. So we've seen here the first part of the king's dream and his impossible demand. The second part of the story is God's revelation of the king's dream. God's revelation of the king's dream. Verses 17 to 19. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Han- these are his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Let's stop right there for a moment. So Daniel informs them that he is going to seek the Lord and they are to pray for him that God would reveal these things. And he does. Their prayers are answered. And God reveals the mystery in a vision. Let me say a couple things about that word mystery. It appears often in Daniel's. Very important. When we hear the word mystery in English, we think of a puzzle, right? Where you have some clues. And if you're really smart, like Sherlock Holmes or something, you can figure out, you can put the clues together. In the Bible, the word mystery has a different meaning. It doesn't mean a puzzle. It means a secret. It means something that has been hidden. No one knows it because God hasn't yet revealed it. Do you see the difference? No one's going to figure this thing out because God hasn't revealed it yet. But God decides to reveal this mystery to Daniel. And this mystery is going to be incredibly significant for future world history, for the nation of Israel, and for a Messiah who's going to come on the scene in 700 years or so. So after learning the mystery, then Daniel praises God. His, his praise is so beautiful. In verse 20 and following, he says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel praises God. He praises Him that He's the source of all wisdom and might. He praises Him that He sets up and removes kings, which is kind of anticipating, foreshadowing what the dream's interpretation is going to be. And notice also that he refers to God as the God of my fathers. He hasn't lost trust in God. He continues to see Him in the light of Scripture. And as we saw last week, He knows that the things that these exiles are going through in Babylon there, they weren't against Scripture. They were part of Scripture. Scripture had told them that, look, if you don't obey me, part of the covenant curses would be, part of the covenant judgments would be that you would be exiled. So he sees himself as right smack dab, as part of the covenant people, seeing God and His workings. And then after giving praise, he moves to action. In verses 24 and following, he says, Therefore, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the 
king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have any more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel tells Arioch, who's the captain of the king's guard, that he knows the interpretation. And so he is brought before Nebuchadnezzar and the king wants to know, can you tell me the dream? But I love what Daniel says in verse 27. Before he ever declares what the dream was about, he lets the king know that only God can reveal this dream. Daniel points out that this dream pertained to the future days, what he calls the latter days. And I love just to see Daniel's humility. Couldn't Daniel in this moment have been tempted with a lot of pride? I mean, he's this relatively new man in the king's court and no one else could possibly interpret this dream. Everybody else was basically on the chopping block and Daniel steps forward and knows the dream. But who does he give all credit to? All credit goes to God. Friends, let us remember that whenever God does any good thing through us, we need to remember where credit is due, right? It goes to God. God gave Daniel that mystery so he could reveal it to the king. And that's exactly what he does. And this leads to the third part of the story. Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream. And this is so fascinating. So Daniel's interpretation of the, king dream, of the king's dream. So to begin, Daniel tells him, look, this is what you actually dreamed. And then he'll get to what the dream means. So in verses 31 to 35, he says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Now when you hear image, think of more like a statue here of a man. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's what the king saw. He saw this image, this great image, this statue of a man. And this statue was mighty, it was very bright, and it was frightening. And it had four parts, and each part corresponded to a metal. The head was gold, the chest and arms were silver. So try to picture this in your eye, your mind's eye. The, the middle and the thighs were bronze, 
and the legs were made of iron, and the feet were partly made of iron and clay. Then separately from the statue, a stone appears that did not come from the statue, that was separate from the statue, comes and strikes the feet of the statue and destroys the whole thing. And then the statue, excuse me, the stone grows into this enormous mountain and fills the earth. So you got that figured out what that means? That's why we depend on the Lord, don't we? And the Lord revealed this to Daniel. And this is so profound, what the interpretation means. Verses 36 and following, it says, This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making, you ruler, making him rule over their all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these." And as you saw, the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they shall mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So Daniel explains that the image corresponds to the succession of four different kingdoms. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And God gave him tremendous authority. As you read that, it might have sounded familiar because he's almost kind of echoing Genesis 1 where God gave Adam this authority over creation. Now, He's not saying you're another Adam, but he's saying that God had given Nebuchadnezzar tremendous authority. And after the Babylonians, there will be three more kingdoms represented by the silver, the bronze, and the iron. Now, in chapter 2, Daniel doesn't specifically identify who they are, but he will do so in chapter 8. And just so I won't leave you hanging, you're wondering, what are these kingdoms? Let me just mention them briefly. The second kingdom was the Persians, who ruled from 539 to 331 B.C. The third kingdom was the Greeks, who ruled from 331 to 63 B.C. And then the fourth kingdom was the Romans. And notice how their description is a little different, isn't it? Their legs were made of iron, but the feet were a mixture of clay that led to their weakness. And some think that perhaps this was how the Roman Empire became so vast that all of these mixed people eventually led to its downfall and instability. Now, as you survey the kingdoms, there was this interesting relationship between their glory and their durability. The kingdoms decrease in glory. As we saw there, the first kingdom was Babylon, and it was symbolized by gold. And we all know that gold's the most precious metal. And it said in verse 39 that the second kingdom, after that, the Persians, they would be inferior to you. 
So the Babylonians would excel in their glory and their grandeur. Do you know what? This is exactly what happened. They were renowned for their knowledge. Here's a, in their building projects, here's a recreation of one of their gates. It's called the Ishtar Gate. It's a recreation. It's almost 50 feet tall. Babylon was known for its incredible majesty and glory. He had the seven hanging gardens, gardens, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. When people went to Babylon, they were blown away by its incredible splendor. So this kingdom, the first one, was the most glorious. But also, the kingdoms not only would decrease in glory, but they would increase in durability. The last kingdom mentioned was the Romans. And they're symbolized by iron, which, of course, is more durable. And the Romans were exactly this. They were organized and efficient and stable. They lasted for almost 500 years. Whereas the Babylonians only lasted 70 years. Let that kind of soak in a little bit. This dream and its interpretation is really stunning. What a testimony to the inspiration of Scripture. It's laying out the next 600 years of world powers. No human can do this, can we? I mean, who could have thought 100 years ago that China would become this world power? Or who could have thought a hundred years ago that Great Britain would have receded so dramatically? Who knows what the next hundred years will bring? Only God can do that. Yes, hopefully Christ. That's a good segue to the next part here, because there is more. In the days of those kings, a final kingdom is going to arise. The kingdom of God. Verses 44 to 45. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor, will the, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. This is incredibly fascinating. He brings out four points here about this coming kingdom of God. Notice what it says here and how it contrasts with these other kingdoms. First is the source. This kingdom is not created by humanity. It says in verse 34 that that stone that was cut out, it didn't come by human hands. It wasn't part of the statue. It says there in verse 44 that the God of heaven sets up this kingdom. And so when Jesus comes along in the New Testament... What does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. It is from God, this kingdom that I'm establishing. He says in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. The source is from God. Second, it's growth. The kingdom of God, as it says there in Daniel, it starts like a stone. right? Just kind of nothing compared to this great image that these other kingdoms were. But that stone grows to the size of a great mountain and fills the earth. 
that sound familiar? When Jesus comes along, does He not say that the kingdom of God is like what? A mustard seed. Starts in infinitesimally small, but then grows like a mustard seed, becomes the tallest plant in the garden, really over time. Just like that, it will start have a meager, small beginning, but then will grow in great glory and grandeur. And therefore, when you look at the kingdom of God, it started from this small band of disciples and has grown all across the world to hundreds of millions of followers and continues to grow. In fact, grows faster now than it has ever grown. pretty powerful, isn't it? Third, it's power. The kingdom of God will destroy these other kingdoms. By Jesus' day, the, other three, the first three kingdoms were already very much waning in power. And so much in a, in a sense, the, Jesus and the kingdom of God kind of finished them off. But it's amazing how these kingdoms have never risen back up to retain their old glory. Right? There's no more Persian Empire or Babylonian Empire. I read this past week, kind of found it funny, that the former Iraqi president, Saddam Hussein, he thought that he was the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. Not likely. He did conquer Kuwait for a little while. But that was about it. That was about it. The fourth kingdom, the Romans, they were still strong when Jesus came along, but they too fell. Will Durant was a famous historian of the the 20th century. He was not a Christian, but listen to these beautiful words, powerful words that he wrote in his book called Caesar and Christ. He says, There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians, scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has ever known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. That's the power of this kingdom. It really is the only superpower in the world. The one that will last, and that leads to the last point, its duration. All these other kingdoms fail, but not this one. We see there that it will never be destroyed. It will never be passed on to another. It will last forever. In the New Testament, Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. All of these kingdoms that we have in our world today will ultimately all fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and His kingdom will reign forever. 2 Peter 1.11 says, The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a picture of this kingdom. Friends, let me just say one other thing. Adam mentioned that passage in 1 Peter, and he's right that in the New Testament, Jesus identifies himself as the stone. He's the stone, the kingdom of God and Jesus. They're intertwined here. They're inextricably connected. They are both the stone. And in Luke 20, Jesus declares that He is the stone and that the Jewish religious leaders, they had rejected Him and He was going to become the cornerstone of a new temple, the new people of God for everyone who places their faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, they would be part of this new people of God. And He was the cornerstone. 
But it's essential that we believe His claims as God's people. The Son of God who died for the sins of the world. But if we reject Him, we will be broken. He says in Luke 20.18, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. If you reject Christ, you will be broken when He returns. You will be crushed in judgment for the rest of eternity. This stone destroys mighty kingdoms that had lasted for centuries. Do not think that you will avoid judgment. The Word of God would would encourage us and exhort us to be broken now for our sins so that we receive grace while there's that opportunity. Because when He returns, we will be broken, but it will be in the place of judgment. Ask Christ to forgive you of your sins today and to receive Him as Lord and Savior of your life so that you might have eternal life. And to share that eternal kingdom that He will establish, friend. In Acts 4.11-22, Peter said to the religious leaders, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord today. He is the cornerstone of salvation. Or He is the stone that people will stumble upon. Let it be the cornerstone of your salvation. Amen? Now we come to the final part of the passage. The king's promotion of Daniel. The king's promotion of Daniel. When King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face... Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now I have to say, I think the king's response is almost as amazing as the dream itself and its interpretation. The king fell on his face. He paid homage to Daniel and ordered that a sacrifice or an offering be made to him. I mean, it's hard enough to imagine a king falling on his face before someone, let alone someone like Nebuchadnezzar, who was so powerful and so full of pride, as we'll see in chapter 4. I think it shows us how overwhelmed he was with this dream and the amount of anguish that it caused him. And so when he finally found out what it meant, he he kind of lost his, his reason for a second there, and his remembrance of his status, and fell down before Daniel because he was so thankful to know what it actually meant. And he even gives praise to Daniel's God. So does that mean that he became a believer in the Lord? Well, we'll see next week whether he truly understood and believed. 
But for now, the king bestowed on Daniel the honors like he said and the riches and made him the ruler over Babylon. Kind of reminds us of Joseph in Egypt, doesn't it? And Daniel's first request is that his three friends would be promoted and his request was granted. Let us pray.